join our host, Naeem Walcott, School Nutrition Director at West Hampton Beach and New York School Nutrition Association President, as he chats with Caitlin Lazarski, the newly appointed School Nutrition Director at Pine Bush Central School District, and Jessica Pino Goodspeed from Hunger Solutions New York, as they focus on the Community Eligibility Provision, aka CEP, and its impact, stories, and challenges. Caitlin shares her experience from her previous district where CEP created a level playing field for all students, allowing significant reinvestment in the program, and Jessica brings up a unique perspective discussing the statewide efforts to maximize participation in federal programs and the growth of CEP since its implementation. All right. Well, we are kicking off and continuing our series for Healthy School Meals for All podcast. My name is Naeem Walcott. I am uh, the West Hampton Beach School Nutrition Director uh, down on the east end of Long Island. And I also serve as the president-elect for the New York State School Nutrition Association. With me today, I've got Caitlin Lazarski, formerly of uh, Newburgh Schools, newly appointed School Nutrition Director at Pine Bush, and acting New York State School Nutrition President. And I've got Jessica Pino Goodspeed with Hunger Solutions New York. Ladies, it's good to have you. Good to be here. So glad to be here with you. Yeah, so today we're really just having a conversation about CEP, Community Eligibility Provision, before, after, some of the stories, some of the challenges. Uh, Caitlin, why don't you just tell us a little bit about where you were and what impact it had on your school? Um, So uh, my former director, district, uh, Newburgh and Large City School District, we have been community eligible since 2015, all schools in, um, and the amount of growth and development we've been able to achieve within that program since then, just because, you know, there was a level playing field for all kids. We had so many opportunities financially um, within the program to reinvest in the program and um, and then give back to our kids because of the program. So it, it was a great opportunity. And what about you, Jessica? What uh, what's what's the candle that has you even joining into this fight? Yeah, so I come from a little bit of a different perspective. I don't work directly in a school, but Hunger Solutions New York is a statewide anti-hunger organization. We work to maximize participation in the federal programs. And so when I started my career was the start of community eligibility. It passed in 2010 um, in legislation, the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, um, and it established uh, community eligibility in New York in 2012. And we became one of the first states to be able to implement and to see from then to now the growth in community eligibility has just been tremendous. Yeah. It's really blowing, mind blowing. And so it's interesting too, right? So the terminology for CEP or community eligibility, it's something that we understand very, very well. Uh, and so basically, and you guys can correct me if I'm ladies, you can correct me if I'm wrong. What we're talking about is that everyone in that school district or everyone in that building now can eat a breakfast and a lunch at no charge, correct? Correct. So community eligibility really simplifies um, the national school lunch and breakfast programs for schools. It allows, instead of tracking kids by their status, their household status, whether they're low income or not, um, it allows all kids to get meals at no cost. Instead, a school needs to qualify for that program. Right. So a school needs, now there's a new threshold for eligibility. Um, at least 25% of those kids have to be connected to free meals because they participate in other means-tested programs. So these are a subset of free and reduced price kids, 
um, who participate in SNAP, Medicaid, or are in certain cir circumstances like foster care or homeless. Wow. And you know, the other thing about the community eligibility program is the word community, right? So like you actually are formalizing communities. It, it's not about individual kids. It's not about individual household incomes. It's about a community that is doing what's best for its children and providing those meals at no cost. Everyone has a even start to the day and, and you know a level playing field. There's no stigma attached to the program. Um, you're really building a community within the school because there's not, no strings attached, no stigma or barrier to the participation in those programs. So yeah. every kid is entitled to that healthy meal. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So my current school district, we will be going into CEP. Um, but prior to that, we understand that the, to get a free and reduced meal, you're doing an income application. And so there are income guidelines. But we have these words that we throw out, like equity for all of our children. And when you start parsing some of this stuff out, you realize that it's it, the lines don't really make sense. And so even within our own state, $50,000 for a family of four is very, very differently spent on Long Island than it is upstate or, or Western region. And so it's not necessarily apples to apples, if you will. And it's, so it's very interesting. And then the other part that I thought was interesting as a, as, a, as a director is that we had universal meals during COVID and we've seen across the country that go away. And this last year, negative student debt ballooning nationally across the board. Do, have you guys had any impact or heard stories in re regard to this? So this is definitely a reality. And so kind of going back to your point about community, I love that, Caitlin, and talking about what a game changer community eligibility is, we saw as many schools able to take action. The directors here at the School Nutrition Association, they took action and adopted community eligibility and made it possible. Um, because they saw that they saw where a family was forty dollars over that income limit and they needed to deny that family and that same family at the end of the year would have to have countless contact from the school trying to reconcile that debt because there are that valid on both sides right a family can't afford it a school needs to balance their budget yep. and so it puts schools in this impossible position where you're asking families for debt and there's a lot of shame. And when you're trying to get families involved in kids' education, how contradictory, right? And so school meal debt was probably one of the biggest pieces of um, that really got some traction for school for New York State to invest in community eligibility this past year. Yeah. And I'll say that, you know, switching from a district that had community eligibility since, you know, 2015, um, now, in my new school district, uh, we are also newly on um, community eligibility as of November 1st because of that decreased threshold on the federal level. Um, but it's interesting because like, I have been so far removed from that having to deny those applications, having to you know, tell someone that you, you, know, you just don't, you, you make a little bit too much to qualify for our program, even though I know what your expenses are. I know how much it costs to live in this community. I know how much you're spending on healthcare and other things to support your family. And now you have to make a decision about providing, you know, your kid with money to to buy lunch at school, or maybe you're deciding that you're going to buy something that's less healthy at a grocery store or a box store. And that's what you're going to have to send in so that your kid has something to eat, something in that lunchbox. You know, you're asking families to make a very difficult decision. And um, and often, you know, that that comes at a, at a cost to the kids and at a cost to the program. So um, coming now back into my new school district where 
there is meal debt and there is this worry that, you know, what are we going to do about these kids and how are we going to cover them and how are we going to explain to these families that they just don't meet that threshold? I am so grateful that I only really have th three total weeks mm -hmm. of being in, in that situation. So now as of November 1st, we're, everyone in that district will um, be able to get free breakfast and lunch for their children. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, what's interesting too is uh, both of you are very heavily involved in advocacy. And so for last year when we were making our ass to our uh, state capital, we were sharing the stories of students that were under the universal banner uh, one year and then were now no longer under that banner. And a lot of those stories were really, really interesting because you're thinking they're just, oh, we're just dealing with little kids, but they're very articulate and they're picking up a lot more and you're hearing comments like, you know, I'm not buying lunch because I have a debt. You know, I don't want to go up there because, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to get a second meal. Uh, the kids aren't necessarily being denied, but they are going home dealing with their parents who are seeing a bill that's growing and increasing and increasing. So it's a very interesting issue, but isn't it awesome where we are? Um, we were speaking yesterday and there was an emphasis on making sure that this stays. So Jessica, you were talking about school districts that one, haven't made the threshold, right? So there's a lot that are, are not making it through. Um, and then the number of kids that are still left out because of that number. You want to speak a little bit about that? Absolutely. So community eligibility changes the game on the individual student side. But now that New York is fully funding community eligibility schools, we're having this new dynamic. And I've talked to many schools this weekend who have told me they qualify maybe for one or two of their buildings. And then in the same district where they have the same families attending maybe the middle school or high school who can't adopt community eligibility and can't reach that threshold are dealing with this arbitrary system where it really penalizes kids because those schools cannot reach that threshold, right. some by a mere few percentage points. So here we have another system where there's an arbitrary line in the sand of the deserving and undeserving. And I think that's the power of offering free meals to all kids beyond community eligibility right. is where we are seeing the national momentum. That's why we see eight states with permanent policy. This isn't a coincidence. This isn't just a trend. We saw what worked in, in um, COVID and we're seeing this gain ground now. You asked me about numbers, and so I wanted to tell you that Please. too. Um, so in New York, luckily we've chipped away at a lot of schools. New York um, has many in community eligibility, but there's still going to be about 750, we estimate, after this rollout, second rollout of community eligibility. 750 50 schools, schools that won't qualify. That will not qualify. And is that districts or just buildings? Those are school buildings because okay. community eligibility can happen at a building level. Gotcha. So that's where we're, so those will probably be spread across many districts. Um, but in terms of number of kids, there's 360,000 kids still left behind. So these are kids who won't have access to free meals in their schools who do not have community eligibility. Hmm. Caitlin, as a director, can you talk a little bit about the challenge that Jessica just described? You're in a school district, let, let's say the elementary school was able to qualify for CEP, and you're a parent, as you are, uh, with multiple school, m multiple kids in, in, throughout the district. So can you just kind of talk to us about like, what is it like with if Johnny's in middle school and they have to pay and, you know, Tony's in elementary school and his meals are free? Like, So we started that way in Newburgh. Okay. Uh, 
I think in 2015, as we adopted full community eligibility in the 16-17 school year, but in 2015, we had eight of our 15 school buildings that were all in. Um, and at that point, you know, systems have gotten better, right? So matching um, the, the process of, of identifying the students that would be eligible has gotten much better. You know, they've had a lot of um, support from the state and federal governments to make sure that that process is more streamlined and that this is not a super difficult pull of information from from the districts. So, but back in 2015, it was it was pretty difficult. You know, it was a lot of spreadsheets. It was a lot of digging, especially in a bigger school district. So at that time, we only had eight of our 15 buildings that were, um, you know, fully able to be at least reasonably funded, right? Um, because there was not this additional subsidy from the state. And it was difficult, you know, we had our, it was one of the two middle schools did not qualify. So I had a middle school on and a middle school off. Um, our high school didn't qualify. So to have these conversations with parents, they're like, I don't understand, you know, my, my one child goes to elementary school, they get it. My one child goes to this middle school and, and they get it, but now they're not, not, you know, in high school, they don't. Um, and we were like, we're working on it. We're working on it. You know, we're trying. And I think that maybe that's still the message that needs to go out. You know, um, getting your parents involved, getting your PTAs involved, getting more people to, to have conversations because those buildings that are still left out, those schools and those kids that are still left out, they need to come and, and talk to their legislators. What does that look like in my community? And, and why doesn't this just doesn't make sense? Why are we doing this? Um, so getting those getting those people to talk about it and what it does for their kids and what it's not doing for for the ones that are left out right. I think is important. You know, it's interesting too. Uh, I think a, a disconnect between the public or you know even parents, and you don't know what you don't know is that school lunch is not paid through their general funds. You know that's not a part of the tax levy. This is a different thing. So that money coming into a program really matters. As a CEP professional and proponent, and as a practitioner. How does CEP affect the quality of the meals that you're now offering to your children? What uh, are you seeing as far as the program development, participation? Are we, is, there, is there data that just says, hey, buildings that are doing this, communities that are doing this, like, what's your input on that, the impact? Well, I can tell you that, you know, from, again, from the standpoint of the district that I left and the district that I'm, I'm newly going into, um, one has had community eligibility for many, many years, and so therefore we, we served a lot of meals, a lot of meals, a lot of breakfast meals. We were able to move breakfast into the classrooms. We were able to do alternate, you know, extended feeding models for breakfast, which is a whole new rev. Uh, it's not just a revenue stream. It's a way, obviously, to get nutrition to kids, um, but it's additional funding for your programs. So being able to do that because there's um, there's easier paths, right? There's you're not having to push every kid through a register and, and collect money and, and do all of that. Um, it, it looks a lot different, and you're bringing in more, basically, federal and state aid to get those those meals paid for. Um, so that looks a lot different than now you have to have these kids come through. You're asking for money. Your participation is lower. Uh, you don't want to ask these kids for what the actual – you're actually serving them almost at a, a decreased cost because you don't want – at this time in, in the economy, you're, you feel badly asking these families to pay – a reasonable amount of money for a lunch or a breakfast, right? So many school programs are actually pricing their meals well under what it costs them to actually pay for their labor and pay for their equipment and pay for the food. So, you know, you're almost operating at a loss when you have to 
pay for, you know, when you're asking families to pay. Yeah. So to have this extra subsidy, you're bringing more revenue into the program, which ultimately is going to be enable you to serve better quality foods, invest in equipment, invest in programs, invest in your staff, you know, invest in training. Yeah. Um, so all of those things really make an impact. So the more kids you have coming through the, your door, the more kids and more meals you're feeding, the better off the programs are and the more able they are to, to do what's best for kids. Absolutely. And definitely broadly across the state, this is what we see from simplified administration. This allows folks like you who are passionate about feeding kids and getting great meals on those trays. And real quick, that's what we're talking about. Feeding kids. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We're feeding kids. Okay. It simplifies it. So yeah. that way you're not chasing debt. You're not figuring yes. out who's low income. Let them feed kids. That's what I tell legislators is that if we can give schools the resources they need and the capacity they need, then they can bring farm to school. Then they can bring um, innovative ways to serve breakfast and feed more breakfast. We know that only 15 minutes to feed breakfast. How can directors feed a whole student body in that time? Community eligibility, that simplification allows schools not only the funds to do it, but the mental capacity and the capacity to build their staff to yeah. to, to manage those things. Yeah, and what it does is goes back to your first thing when you were talking about community. It establishes food into the community, into the curriculum. Um, and the other part here, um, and I saw this during the universal meals period, is it also establishes some more trust between you and the parents. Because as they are able to afford things a little bit more, they start engaging in the conversation. I had more parent involvement with my menus during universal meals than I did when it went back to the paid. The paid model knocked people off that could not uh, participate. And once they weren't participating, well, then the, the program kind of atrophied. And we had negative debt like a lot of other school districts did. So it's an interesting point there. What else do you see as a way forward for CEP? So we're, we're talking about how do we keep it, how, do we, how, how does it stay? We know that it impacts us in, in, in positive ways. It increases the amount of kids that are participating, which across the board and across the program benefits everybody. But what are some of the other things that we're missing here as far as parts of the equation that you think are important to see and note? So I think with community eligibility, what we saw through the pandemic and the power of universal feeding we're, we've always been afraid to say, community eligibility has been such a great thing, but we're afraid to say that until now that it falls short. We see now that it can be done. A universal where we don't have to look at income, it can be done. Um, so I think there's the power really is to recognize the shortfalls of community eligibility, I think is a part, a necessary part of the victories that we have. And what comes next from my perspective is continuing this momentum towards healthy school meals for all kids. Awesome. We know that with any arbitrary thresholds for income, we're going to leave kids behind. We're gonna threaten food access for families who need it. Schools, communities, we're all doing our best, but we saw what works and we shouldn't let, you know, anything get in the way of really making sure that happens for our kids because our kids can't wait. And wouldn't it be a beautiful thing, I, I tell this story to every legislator I sit in front of, uh, I told it today um, at, at our general session, but you know, I, when my son came into to Newburgh as a pre-K student, we were under community eligibility already. So he was just used to like, I come to my classroom, I have breakfast with my friends, I have breakfast with my, you know, my teacher's there, and, and we have this nice, quiet, easy start to our morning, we have lunch. 
um, he had no idea until I switched districts <laughs> that meals even had to be charged in other schools. Like he had no no concept of, oh, wait, what do you mean it's based on how much their family can afford? Like, that's silly. That doesn't make any sense. And so wouldn't it be nice for us to have like this whole, whole honestly, the whole country of kids that wouldn't know that, well, you know, I that he doesn't have to pay for breakfast because, right. you know, his... <laughs> Uh, like it, it's judge, it's judgmental. It's it's barrier. It causes barriers unnecessarily. And and why do kids kids have enough going on? They have enough mental mental health issues and stress, and just being kids right now. So why put that extra worry and pressure on those kids? Yeah. Just let's eliminate it. You know, like they they get they get bus to school. They get a nurse at school. They get their teachers, security. They get everything. Why is food something different? Why should food be the one thing? that you you know you have to you have to contribute based on how much your your family makes. Yeah. And you know when you're talking about food and I brought this up in the last podcast you, we're really talking about nutritionally supporting and helping a child develop. We're talking about you know our motto this year is every child every day. Well, two of those meals a day, especially if you're talking about an at-risk child, a child that has food is dealing with food insecurity, they're eating our meals to nourish and grow. That's going to help them developmentally, cognitively going to help their hormone development. Across the board, nutrition is part of wellness and education. And the better it is backed up by our legislators to allow us to do the job that we've been tasked to do, the more uh, available we can make it for our kids and therefore our communities. And how many of those at-risk kids, those especially middle school and high school students, are not getting those meals because there's a stigma attached. They don't want people to judge them. You know, they want to stay under the radar and not let anybody know. So they would rather forego those healthy meals than than have them, than participate in a free meal program that stigmatizes them. So again, we're putting up these unnecessary barriers to kids that are at risk and need these meals. Absolutely. And so I, it's so true. And I think what we, the work cut out for us this year is to help lawmakers understand the stigma that we all know and understand. There is now, because we have community eligibility for every eligible school in New York, there's going to be community perceptions around those schools that have mixed yes. mixed squ- status, really, really right? And so if we can help drive home about stigma that I cannot imagine, I had one person tell me about what a plight it must be to be a low-income kid in an affluent school and how ostracized you must be in that school. So what more of a reason? These aren't all rich kids. We know hunger exists in every single community. And so we cannot look the other way. And we need our lawmakers to understand that kids face this stigma, and it's real. Yeah. You know, just as an aside comment, you know, the other part is that we do hear these comments about, you know, the rich kids. And it's like, well, wait a second. Are we delineating with children with whatever the level of income their house is. So that kid, because he's quote unquote rich, he doesn't get to get a proper nutritionist meal because let me, let's be honest here. Most people aren't planning meals the way school nutrition professionals are planning meals, right? So we're following not only the board of health, but we're following USDA guidelines. They're just putting another round of amendments to refine the nutritional requirements for children. Everything there, our, our data is reviewed, procurement is reviewed. So everything that a school nutrition professional is doing is data and science-backed, uh, federally mandated as the best way to n- nourish a child. And so what we're saying is, well, if you make too much money, mm, well, 
Nutrition doesn't matter. It right? doesn't really matter to you. Right, exactly. So I'm, again, we're we're not just a food program. You're right, and you know I've, I've said that before too. It's like this is a nutrition program at its at its base. This program, these programs were put in place to make sure that our kids have proper nutrition. Yeah, that they grow up healthy, that they have um, exposure to healthy foods, mm-hmm. and they understand how to eat well for the rest of their lives, so that yes. we're not dealing with yes. sick adults. Yeah, you know, and 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 didn't we learn anything from COVID that like it starts at home or not at home but it starts at a young age you know exposure to good food and and developing those palates and making sure that they know what's good for them and and how and how to consume it like that that's that's so important we don't want sick adults (laughs) we i think you might have said this today as well we're talking about uh the family units right so or somebody said this today we're just talking about the family units and saying you know, there are kids that come from great families, but there are also kids that don't come from great families. And guess what? When they come to the line, we don't know who's who. And when they come to the line, we shouldn't know what, about how much money mom and dad make because it really doesn't matter. You're in my space, and I want to make sure you're, you eat the best meal possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I just think that those are, those, are, those are interesting factors that go into the surrounding conversation because that definition of community is a big deal. And the stigma, as you were talking about, well, that district is all free, so that must be a poor district. There's such big things, and I think the other element that we forget is that it's also, we live in the social media age. So these kids are posting, and a lot of this stuff can be eliminated by universal meals for children. Absolutely, and I really feel like this funding, this way of really changing the system of school meals will let you all do exactly what you all just talked about, right? It actually gives you the tools to do your job. Um, I don't think it's too much to ask. Well, just a quick random thing. Jessica, you were talking about the fact that Hunger Solutions New York is a pilot that other states are adopting. So you're an advocacy group for us here in New York State. So are you telling me that not every state has you? Basically, <laughs> so when I t- was talking about the pilot, um, that is through that was we were one of the first implementers of community eligibility. So that was the pilot. Luckily, there are other hunger solutions. Not exactly, we are not affiliated, but there are other anti-hunger groups. But some states do not have anti-hunger groups, and I think this drives back to why this should be a national policy. Luckily, we have great advocates in New York beyond myself and really working to bring these folks together. But I see my partners in sister states that don't have the capacity that we have at Hunger Solutions New York to lead a campaign like this um, or don't have the political appetite. Mm. Florida kids deserve free meals for all just as much as New York kids, just as much as California, Maine, from sea to sea, right? So this is should be a national priority. And, you know, states will keep chipping away until the federal government falls in line as well, I'll say. Um, And, you know, really make sure that our future generation leaders are taken care of. And hopefully as we continue to, we we get our meals for all students everywhere in in New York State, you know, and I'm sure all of our um, sister states who are doing this already um, are giving that data back to our national um, government and saying like, look at at what we're able to do. Look at what schools in New York are now able to do for their kids. Look at what schools in 
Connecticut or um, Colorado and California are able to do for their kids. Look at what it's done for meal programs. Look at how much more farm to school they're able to do. Look at how much more scratch cooking they're able to do. Look how they're better able to implement the federal guidelines for healthy meals because they have the funding and there's less administrative burdens for them to hurdle and they have more focus on the food and the nutrition. So, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get that data back out to our federal partners and, and see that they'll be able to do that for, for the rest of the country. So. Awesome. Well, Jessica Pino Goodspeed from Hunger Solutions New York and Caitlin Lazarski, New York State President of the New York, uh, New York State School Nutrition President. I uh, just want to thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Thank you. <laughs>